So if you missed either of the last two weeks, I would really encourage you to listen back online. Um, A fortnight ago, it was Vision Sunday here. And uh, we heard how this year we're going to be pursuing our vision as a church with a, with a particular emphasis on this phrase, Acts from Acts, which is also the title of a talk series that John started last week, exploring how we can be a church that, that looks and acts like the church did in the book of Acts that we read about in the Bible, um, engaging in acts of devotion and evangelism and worship and wonder and uh, hospitality and generosity and unity and all of that. And as we continue that series today, I want to start this morning by showing you what is quite possibly the best photo that's ever been taken. Here it is on the screen. Now, I don't know if you can see it yet. If they shift it around the other way, can you see? This is a flock of flamingos in the shape of a flamingo. How amazing is that? And before you cynics start, you know, is it done on Photoshop? Here it is in this excellent publication, Ultimate Weird But True, Volume 2, which is not available at the Connect area. So how did this happen? How did this happen? You know, was there one bossy flamingo, Pete the bossy flamingo at the centre of it all, squawking out orders? You stand there, you stand there. I don't know. Um, And I'm aware that this is quite possibly the only thing that you're going to remember about this talk in six months' time. But that's not necessarily a bad thing, because I think this is an amazing picture of the church. The word Christian, um, actually, we first read about it in the book of Acts, in the Bible, in chapter 11. And it comes from a derogatory nickname that people gave the followers of Jesus. Um, And it means little Christ's. And the nickname kind of stuck, because that's essentially what we are. We're mini Jesuses. We're filled with his spirit. Um, And a bit like this picture, the miracle of the church is that through the centuries and across the globe, billions of mini-Jesuses around the world have somehow managed to assemble themselves into the shape of something that looks like Jesus to the world, a body that engages in acts of generosity and worship and unity and all the rest of it. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. And so this is a picture of the church. I think it's also a picture of the story of chapter 2 of Acts. Um, Because if you read chapter 2, the church starts really at the the start of that chapter on the day of Pentecost. um, When the first believers encountered the Holy Spirit um, for the first time, um, and they start praying in tongues, a bit like a, a sort of a flock of squawking flamingos really and then 3,000 people um, hear about the message of Jesus and they turn to Jesus and the church is born but somehow by the end of that chapter miraculously this chaos has turned into something they've miraculously arranged themselves into something that looks like Jesus and they're engaged with acts of worship and prayer and hospitality and unity and wonder and devotion and evangelism how on earth did it happen who organized it all Well, in this case, there was um, one bossy guy called Pete at the middle of it all, um, trying to coordinate things. But really, this was beyond anything that any one person could arrange. And today, I want to suggest that the secret, as we look at uh, this passage in chapter 2 of Acts, is the way they started. In verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to to the apostles' teaching 
which would have essentially the, the accounts of Jesus' life and, and ministry and teaching that would later form the backbone of the New Testament that we now read, um, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I believe it was as they devoted themselves over to these practices that the Holy Spirit, it was the Holy Spirit through them, guided them, empowered them to bring their individual lives to the table and then assemble it in the shape of something that looks like Jesus. And in the coming weeks, um, it's our desire that we would be a church, um, as I said, that looks like a church from Acts, to go out and, and, and each of us to do thousands of individual acts of all these different things. And you might have been wondering, as John was talking about it, how is that going to be coordinated? Like, how are we all going to know what, what, what to do? How is, how is Pete going to know that it's his turn to go and be generous on Wednesday with somebody? How is, uh, how is George going to know that it's his turn um, to offer to pray for healing for somebody in the street that he bumps into next Thursday? How, how are Richard and Rosie going to know that it's their turn to be hospitable um, this week and invite a neighbour round for a meal? Who's going to coordinate it all? Are John and Debbie going to do like a big rota for 2,000 of us, 3,000 of us with everything to do? Or are they going to delegate that job some of the more bossy flamingos amongst us. I don't know. The truth is, whilst we'll be producing lots of resources and tools to help us engage with um, all of this stuff, the, the answer really is, it's the Holy Spirit that's going to coordinate it. And it's through these acts of devotion, it's as we pray, it's as we um, engage with the Bible individually and corporately that he will stir our hearts. In fact, I believe that it's, you know, if we do these things, it's impossible to do them without eventually being stirred into action by the Spirit. And I think this, what I'm trying to do really, is help to remind us some sense of, of why we do these things. Why do we do the stuff we do in church? Um, I remember chatting to somebody who, um, they'd started to lead here on a team, lead a team here at Trent. And um, they, they said to me, now, I've got this team that I'm overseeing, and I see you leaders here at Trent. Something I've noticed is that you tend to meet, like, all the time with people on your teams um, for a coffee. It's all, all you seem to do is sit and drink lattes and chat to these people. And I was like, not all the time. Sometimes it's a flat white instead of a latte. <laughs> but anyway, um, he, he said, so I've started to do that with my team because um, it's what you do. But the thing that I'm trying to figure out is, like, what am I supposed to talk about? Like, what's the point of having those little meetings? And essentially, he was doing something because he'd seen it done, but he hadn't necessarily connected with why. And in a similar way, when we become a Christian, um, we start going to church, we, we do the stuff that you do, don't we? We study the Bible. Um, on a Sunday, we might do the Lord's Supper. Um, we join a small group. We start praying, perhaps have a quiet time. And if we don't stop to consider why we do these things. It's as though becoming a Christian is simply about, you know, everything else in your life staying the same, and you just add this tick list of new things that you've got to do on top of that, little habits or activities into our lives, because it's what Christians do. It's the tradition. So having a devotional life is about having this little 10-minute sort of slot at the start of the day where you pray and read a bit of Bible, and then you just carry on with your life as normal. Being part of a church is about this 90-minute thing that you do on a Sunday the Lord's Supper, if we don't stop and think about why we're doing it, it's just this weird thing where we get up and dunk bits of bread in a cup of juice. If it's not clear why we do it, fellowship is just becomes a Christianese word for friends and mates. 
And as we read Acts, I think it's easy to read it and go, well, of course they did all of those things because it's, it's what you do in church, isn't it? But at this point, that hadn't necessarily been established as a template for the church. At this point, um, there were no church buildings. Um, they hadn't even landed on the word church yet to describe their community. And so they could have started doing, after Pentecost, anything really. They could have devoted themselves to any practices. They could have, they could have all gone and got matching Jesus tattoos. Um, they could have started a Jesus museum. They could have assembled themselves into the shape of Jesus or even a flamingo. They could have done whatever they wanted to. Why did they devote themselves to these particular practices? And I think the answer is partly because as Jewish people, they already would have been used to these practices. They already prayed. Um, they already studied the scriptures because the first sort of big chunk of the Bible, the Old Testament, that's the Jewish scriptures that they would have been familiar with. They already practiced community. Um, even the practice of the Lord's Supper that the church began to do, breaking bread, had emerged out of the Jewish Passover ceremony. Um, so these were familiar practices. But what had happened is that now that they had encountered Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they saw these familiar practices in a new light. They weren't doing new things. They were doing them in a new way. Take the apostles' teaching. Most of the believers at that point hadn't actually known Jesus. They had simply encountered his spirit on the day of Pentecost. And so the apostles' teaching, in that they were hearing from those that had spent time with Jesus, um, talk about Jesus' life, go back through all the miracles. And what they were doing is they were going back through all of the Old Testament scriptures and they were, they were, they were revealing how all of this stuff pointed to Jesus, how in his life and through his miracles and through his teaching and ultimately through his death and resurrection, he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all the prophecies. He was the Messiah that they had been um, waiting for. And it, would have just it was just this amazing revelation for them. A bit like in Luke's gospel, we hear about these two travelers who encounter the risen Jesus on the road to Emmaus. On the, on the road to Emmaus. And they say, weren't our hearts burning within us as he revealed and opened the scriptures to us. And that's what it would have been like for them every week on a Sunday. You're thinking, yeah, I would like to go and listen to talks like that rather than this guy, what he's doing this morning. But it was incredible. Fellowship changed. It was now about not just meeting together, but with an understanding, as Jesus had explained, that where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. They realized they were united with him in their fellowship as one body. The Lord's Supper had evolved from this annual Jewish Passover celebration to a means of regularly, over every meal, recentering around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and around the cross. And prayer was transformed. Prayer was now um, a, a conversation about a relationship with a heavenly father. It was about um, communication and relationship with him. And it was also about exercising this new authority that the believers had um, in Jesus' name and through the Holy Spirit's power. So all of these things had changed because what the focal point of their life had changed. And all of these other things changed in response to that. Um, they were repositioning their prayer life and the way they did fellowship and the way they did, the way they did teaching and looking at the scriptures with devotion. Uh, the word devotion um, that we read about in this passage, um, when you sort of like translate the original word, it carries a sense of, of vigilance, of being like on hand, a continual readiness, diligence, and focus. And that was the way they engaged with these things. That's what it was to devote themselves to it. It reminds me of um, 
You know, in most rooms in your house or my house, there's usually like a focal point um, that every, all the other furniture has to kind of fit around. So like in the bedroom, for example, it'll be the bed. In the kitchen, it's probably, you know, the table or the oven and everything else kind of like centers around that. In the living room, depending on what sort of like social class you're from, it's either the fireplace or the telly. Um, and in our living room, it is the telly. And the other day, Abby and I, we moved our TV from one corner of the living room to the other. And what we found was consequently, all of the other furniture had to shift around to kind of acknowledge this new focal point in our lives. And that's what happens when we become a Christian. There is a shift in the focus of our life. We move from, from death to life. We're, we're no longer slaves to sin. We're, we're slaves to righteousness. The old is gone and the new has come. It's as though Jesus comes, he picks up the telly and he moves it over here and he says, now that's your new focus point. It's me. I am the way, the truth and the life. And so orchestrate everything around me. And so these practices, prayer, Bible, fellowship, Lord's Supper, they're not just little nice touches or nice habits that we stack on top of our life. We're not adding new scatter cushions or the odd pot plant to our living room. We're moving around the furniture when we engage in these things on this fixed point of reality. And so if we see these acts of devotion as just habits, um, then, you know, it's easy to ignore or forget them when we're too busy or too tired. But if we see them this way as acts of devotion, then they just need to occupy appropriate space in our life. Everything else just has to fit around it. Like, a really good example of this was this couple who started coming here about five years ago called Andy and Lisa. And at the time, they were both processing questions about God. But their faith really came alive as they started coming along here on a Sunday, and especially as they came along to a small group. The only problem was they lived over an hour's drive away. And so they explored other options, they explored other churches, but in their case, they eventually decided, look, this group is just massive for us. It's transforming our lives. And so everything else just have to fit around it. And so they just tried, drove back and forth to come to that group, and they continue to do that. In fact, about a year ago, when the leaders of that group decided it was time that they, they were going to take a break and step aside from leading it, um, they, they, they stepped up, and they're now leading that group, hosted in somebody else's home in Stapleford. That's what it is to devote ourselves to fellowship. And I want to ask you to consider, are there any areas of your devotional life that you feel like God might be asking you to reorientate at the moment, whether it's Bible study or prayer um, or fellowship? Are they occupying the right space in your life? Or are there some bits of furniture that you need to move around right now? For example, like, I don't know, is your, um, is your phone and all the apps and stuff, is that sitting in the place that prayer really belongs in, in your life? Or are there other things that are occupying the space that the Bible belongs in in your life as your ultimate source of truth and guidance? I think really this question, it's kind of asking us to consider not just whether we pray or read the Bible, do fellowship, but, but how do we do those things? How? And so this is the point where we're going to shift into looking slightly more practically at how we engage with these things. We're going to focus a little bit more heavily on the Bible and prayer um, because the other acts of devotion listed in this passage, fellowship and the Lord's Supper, they're going to be covered in a bit more detail elsewhere in this series. So firstly, we read, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the study of the scripture. Now, 
When it comes to reading the Bible, I know that some of us find it really easy. We could just do it for hours. Others find it difficult or even confusing. Um, I think especially uh, when we're starting out. I remember when I became a Christian, I sort of had a Catholic upbringing um, as a kid. But I sort of came to faith as a young adult. And I didn't actually have a Bible at the time besides um, like a kid's Bible. So I went to the bookshop and I bought a Bible. And I remember taking it, a lo- like, I remember taking it along to a Bible study. And then one week, it was my turn to read a passage out loud. And as I read from my Bible, I remember the other people sort of looked at me a bit weird. And then one of them asked me, like, what translation are you reading? And I I didn't know really what they were on about. I was like, as far as I was concerned, I was reading the English one, you know, because I thought that's what what we all have. But I didn't realize. I didn't realize I'd come to, to become a Christian because I wanted to know God. Um, And I didn't realize that part of that deal was then learning how to understand a piece of ancient literature, which isn't always a straightforward thing to do. And so um, it might be that that's an area where you're like, I really could, if somebody could make this simpler, that would be helpful. So here's just a couple of things that might be helpful. If that's you, it might be worth investing in in one of these. This is my um, um, study Bible. Um, and um, they're a little bit of an investment. You might spend about £30 on one of these, but um, they're really helpful because they just have a little bit of text underneath the Bible that explains what the different verses mean and how you might apply them to their lives. And this is the NIV one. There's, a really good, there's an ESV one, and there's one called the, the Life Application Study Bible and many others, but that, they're a really good investment. Or sometimes it's helpful to have a book that you read alongside the Bible that helps explain it. Um, And again, I'd really recommend these books. They're they're called the For Everyone series. Every book of the Bible, there's like Genesis for everyone, Mark for everyone. This is Acts for everyone by um, a guy called Tom Wright, um, who also writes under the name N.T. Wright. And just really, really easy to read and just unpacks and opens up what each passage is saying. Um, If you've got kids... Another book that I'd really recommend is this one called Diary of a Disciple, um, Peter and Paul's story. It's actually the book of Acts, um, but it's kind of written in um, a really similar format to the Diary of the Wimpy Kid books. Um, So as your kids are reading it, it just makes it really easy for them to read it in a really expressive way. So that's a really good one if you've got kids or if you're just a fun person and you want that one. So I recommend those. And I also found it really helpful... When John shared the other week how his experience of reading the Bible or, or, or studying the Bible has been enriched in recent years as he's um, listened to it through audio recordings. And I would um, really share his endorsement of that app, the Bible in One Year app. It's really helpful. Um, but especially during this season of um, us being a church pushing into the book of Acts, I would love to recommend something that I'm really excited about is a devotional podcast that we're releasing right now. Um, it covers every chapter of the book of Acts, 28 installments, um, and each one there's a, it's about 10 minutes long. There's a, 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 a chapter of the, of the Bible read, um, and then there's a short sort of devotional thought, and then a bit of a prayer meditation exercise. Um, and those have been written by people, a load of different people from the church, and they're recorded by people in the life of the church. And um, you'll be able to access it on all of the different podcast platforms. There'll be some information about it on the screen, I'm sure. 
There's also, um, if you do prefer to read or read alongside it, there's a PDF version of it so you can read it. Or if you don't have access to digital devices, you can request a hard copy at the Connect area. But um, really encourage you to do that. I think that the first three are uploaded and online at the moment. Um, and then from Thursday onwards, they'll carry on doing them. And it'll be um, five a week on Monday to Friday. So you might want to just go through it five a week. You might want to take it at your own pace. Um, but I really encourage you to, to get involved in that podcast. Um, that's studying the Bible. And then moving on to prayer. And to prayer, they devoted themselves to that. Question here is, is prayer occupying the right space in your life right now? Um, is it, as, um, as Corrie ten Boom once asked, your spare tire, the thing that you only bring out in emergencies? Or is it more like your steering wheel, the thing that is guiding and directing your journey? Do you approach prayer as something that you ought to do, like a, a, a box to tick? Or is it something that you see as having the potential to move mountains? That's the sort of question that often challenges me when I'm on my way to our Tuesday morning um, men's prayer meeting that we have here in term time. It's at 7 a.m. Um, and I'm, I'm a cycle commuter, so sometimes I'm on my way there and it's dark and it's raining and I'm just thinking I would rather be in bed as I'm cycling here. Um, but it's often in those moments that I feel God reminding me that actually... What a privilege it is that he invites us to pray. What a privilege it is that the, that the creator and sustainer of the universe invites us to have a role in his affairs through prayer. It's the most incredible thing. And as, as he sort of nudges me, I often feel my heart swell in that moment. I'm like, I'm going to do something that's really important, that has the ability to change mountains, move mountains. And so perhaps for some of us, God is inviting us to, to just adjust the way we see prayer and perhaps initiate something new in your prayer life. If you're wondering what that next step for you might be, here's a couple of thoughts. One step might be to, to get involved in the prayer ministry times that we do down here at the front after every service, or perhaps re-engage in that if it's something you used to do more often. Um, in the book of Acts, prayer we see was something that they devoted themselves to personally, but also corporately. And in the same way, we are a church that's, that's committed to this that's committed to praying together for one another regularly after every service and in small groups, providing space for people to come down the front. And just in case, if you don't know this, if you're part of this church, if you're in a small group, then when we do ministry time, you're part of the prayer team at that point. Um, and so all you have to do is you just come down the front, find somebody of the same sex, um, you ask them, you know, what's your name, ask them what they want prayer for, and then don't worry, you don't need to have elaborate prayers. If you don't know what to pray, you can just pop, pop the hand on their shoulder and invite the Holy Spirit to come and bless them. And then just watch what God does and just respond to that in your prayers. And if it's your first time and you're not sure what to do, you can even ask one of the coordinators in the black t-shirts to pair you up with a buddy who will show you the ropes. So I'd encourage you, that might be your next step this morning. And uh, let's do that. Let's be a church that's devoted to praying together. Often when people come up the front to get prayer, I think it can, you, know, you can feel quite vulnerable doing that. And so it's an opportunity to be family. So let's not leave people waiting when they come down the front. Let's swoop around them and, um, and, and pray with them. And meet their needs with God's resources through, through prayer ministry. Another step might be to come along to that prayer meeting that I talked about um, earlier. I know the 7 a.m. start isn't the, the, the sort of like the deal clincher there, um, but we have pre-service prayer meetings in the prayer move. 
room and we have Tuesday morning prayer meetings um, where each week um, a bunch of men and a bunch of women, probably about 30 altogether, they lift up all the stuff that's going on in the life of the church to God. Um, And often it strikes me at that meeting when I think about all of the stuff that's going on in the life of this church, all the different ministries and all different things that's going on, I think, wow, if this is what happens when 30 people pray each week, what would happen if 100 prayed? What would happen if 200 prayed? And I know it's not you know, as simple as that sort of maths. And, and of course, that's not the only place we pray. We pray in our staff meetings all the time. We pray before we do things. We pray all over the place. But I just wanted to encourage you, if you've never been along to one of those prayer meetings, Perhaps try and make that your next step at some point in the next few weeks. Maybe start coming once a month. For others, the next step might be in your personal prayer life. And if that's an area where you're looking to gain a bit of traction, um, I'd really recommend, I found this really helpful, this book called How to Pray by Pete Gregg. It's a fantastic book. I think it was recommended earlier in the year by John. And um, this book reminds me of, do you remember the Head and Shoulders adverts? Like, why read 10 books about prayer when you could just read this one? Because basically, it covers, you know, most of the important stuff that you really need to know about prayer in a really simple book. It works its way through the Lord's Prayer. It's got loads of practical tips and exercises. um, And it's also got some incredibly inspiring stories of answers to prayer. And um, in the book, um, Pete, the author, he, he, he explains how he, some of the best advice that he ever feels he's received about prayer are these three things. Keep it simple, keep it real, and keep it up. Keep it simple. Um, our prayers don't need to be long or fancy. God suggests that we just come to him the same way a, a child would come to a loving parent. Um, keep it real. We don't have to pretend to be anybody else in prayer. We don't need to sort of try and show off. We don't need to try and pretend that we're more holy or religious than we are. We don't need to quote loads of Bible verses to God when we're praying. He's pretty familiar with his work. And we're to talk to God really exactly how we would speak to our most trusted and respected friend in our own language. And then thirdly, keep it up. In Luke chapter 18, it says, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. I think there's power in keeping going. I remember I was at a wedding um, of a friend um, some years ago, who I, his character, I really admire and respect this guy's character. And in his speech, he thanked his parents for the way that they had prayed for him every day of his life. And as he said that, the penny just dropped for me. I was like, yes, that his character is in no small part the fruit and the answer to thousands of little prayers day in, day out. When you meet a person, you know, and spend five minutes with them, it's hard to tell whether they've had time to pray that morning. But there's no mistaking somebody who's prayed day in, day out for 20 years. The kind of devotional life that makes a difference in the long run is about Drip, drip, drip. So even if you, um, you know, even if you start, have to start somewhere small with this, even, you know, at the moment, if you're just not really praying barely ever, set a reminder in your phone to pray for one minute every day. And then after a while, perhaps you could build it out to one minute three times a day. And then five minutes three times a day. And sort of take it from there. I think it's about starting somewhere realistic and then keeping going. And... Um, 
Personally, I'm on a bit of a journey with this myself. Um, just one example. Last year, um, I heard this really inspiring South American pastor share about his personal devotional practices. And they've got all this stuff going on in their ministry. And what he says he gets up and, and just spends time with the Holy Spirit. So like no Bible reading necessarily or sort of um, structure to it. He just spends time in the presence of the Holy Spirit an hour or two every morning. I was like, wow. And it challenged me because I like a little bit more structure in my devotional life. So I felt like God was maybe prompting me to start to engage with this a bit. So I thought, right, January, I'll make a start. And let's start somewhere realistic. Um, Twice a week, half an hour. No sort of structure, just me sat there listening to the Holy Spirit. And so the first time I did it, set the timer, 30 minutes. Got to 29 minutes and I realized I'd probably spent about 90 seconds actually engaging with God because my mind was all over the place. I found it so hard to focus. Um, Now, of course, we're a few months into it and I'm probably up to about two and a half minutes out of the 30 minutes. It's not got much easier um, and it's not something that I find naturally easy, but I'm doing it because I feel that God's put it on my heart. So I'm not sort of saying, oh, that's something that we should all do or anything like that. I'm just saying I'm trying to respond to what I feel God's leading me in this. And I'm trusting that since he said that, that eventually it will bear fruit and it will be of worth. And I think that really leads into the final thing that I wanted to say about devotions and devotional practices from my own experience. I know I've gone to sort of like to lengths to stress the importance of understanding why we do these things. But the truth is, and I realize this is potentially contrary to what I've said, the truth is sometimes they will feel a bit dry. Sometimes um, they will feel difficult. Sometimes we'll lose, we'll forget why we're doing them in the first place. But I still believe there's value in keeping going with them, and being devoted to them, because the Holy Spirit, he works through them anyway. It reminds me um, of, of jogging in my life. Um, I started jogging when I was a teenager, and I st- my initial why for that was because I, I kind of w- wanted to attract girls, but I also wanted to eat chips a lot. And I thought jogging would be a good way of sort of reconciling those two passions. And it wasn't an enjoyable thing. It was monotonous. It was painful. But I've been doing it for over 20 years now. And I'm not fast. And it doesn't, nowadays it doesn't seem to keep the weight off as well as it used to. But I have come to understand how rewarding it is, not just physically, but mentally and spiritually. And I I really enjoy it. Now, I know there'll be people here who don't jog who won't believe me about that. But those of you that do will back me up. I started out with one sense of why. And then through devoting myself to it and just plugging away, I've discovered deeper and richer whys. And that's how it works with this book. And that's how it works with prayer. It's as we keep going. I remember when I, early days of reading the Bible, I remember falling asleep, literally falling asleep with my head by the Bible, particularly in the book of Numbers. I remember in the early days of prayer, just you feel like you're just talking to thin air. But through the years, through sticking at it, I've slowly come to experience how rewarding it can be. Of course, sometimes we go through seasons, even as uh, more mature Christians, where prayer will feel once again like a one-sided conversation. The Bible will seem dry, as though we're going through the motions. Um, But I want to suggest even that is not necessarily a bad thing. In the book that I mentioned um, by Pete Gregg, 
he explains and he reminds us that that phrase, going through the motions, it actually comes from ballet. And he points out that the most gifted and creative dancers who can move with breathtaking grace, they can do it because of precisely that, because of years and years of going through the motions. Those repetitives and perhaps sometimes seemingly stale exercises, they don't stifle life. They're a path to it. And so I think that's why it's so important that we start out, as this passage does, with acts of devotion. Because it's through these that the Spirit, he will guide us, he will shape us, both personally and corporately, into his likeness. And then stir us and send us out to go and be to the world something that looks like the image of Jesus. So um, if you're able, would you like to stand?